And welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin, author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, we are talking about a little bit of the racing action from last weekend, the dominance we saw from Tadej Pogacar at Torino Adriatico, as well as the interesting riding we saw from Primoz Roglic when he won Paris-Nice. Big win, undisputable good performance there, but he stumbled on the last day, quote unquote stumbled. But we'll dig into that a little bit and like what that means for the Tour de France. I would heed some caution as to just giving Pogacar the tour right now, even though he looks incredibly strong, as well as talking about Milano Sanremo, the first monument of the year, which is on Saturday. Very exciting time. But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition, comes out at minimum once a week. If you like the podcast, that's a no-brainer. Sign up for that right now. There's a paid edition that comes out every day during Grand Tours, covers every major race, gives you discounts to select brands like FastCat Coaching, Curate of Switzerland, and Stages Cycling. If that sounds interesting to you, you can sign up for that at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. All right, back to the racing. Um, let's talk about last weekend just for a few minutes before we get into Milano Sanremo. Tadej Pogacar wins Torino Adriatico um, scarily easily. I mean, it was um, not even really competition, but also last year wasn't either. Torino, I, I, I don't know like if they have a good PR team, but it's like cycling Twitter keeps saying that it's like a better race than Perry Nice. It's not even close. I mean, Perry Nice is exciting racing every day. Um, that looked like it was going to be a blowout from the beginning after Yumbo blew it up on the first day. But, you know, Roglic was like on the ropes in the last day. It seems to like in the last decade, it seems like it's come down to that final day. It's this fascinating, um, really tough race through Nice, um, like through the mountains around the city and then like finishes. You have to descend through the city streets and then do the Caldez and then descend back down to the city for a finish. It always seems to come down to that stage. It's very exciting. It's like really thrilling from start to finish. There's almost no boring stages. Um, Terreno is just as like this, this like fun ride. I'm, obviously, this is like offensive to people who did the race. Not a fun ride, but it looks to be a fun ride from like two coasts in Italy, and never really seems to. It seems like half the stages are sprint stages, and then there's like two or three GC set pieces. I don't quite understand why people are saying that's a better race in uh, Paris-Nice, and it also. The last two years have just been like a Pogacar, like cakewalk. Like in 2021, he he beats Wout Van Aert by a minute um, in the GC, which at the time I feel like was underrated for Wout, and in retrospect is very underrated because um, that's about half the winning margin that he had this year over Jonas Vingegaard, which was about two minutes, and then Mika Landa was 233 behind in third place. Um, last year it was even easier. We had Landa in third at four minutes back, so. Um, yeah, P- Torreno is like, Pogacar is fantastic. Um, I mean, his performance, his climbing performance there on stage six on Saturday was really impressive. Like he just absolutely destroyed Vindegaard and, and Landa. Like he put so much time into them. It was, it was like a little freaky. It was like in four kilometers, he had put a minute and a half into them, um, which is really crazy. But before like we go wild about that, and I've been getting a lot of concerned comments and like emails about Pagachar like ruining the sport being so good that it's not a competition. He's not ripped. His legs look like meat sticks was a quote I got from somebody. Um, he pedals weird. He has too much hamstring in his pedal stroke. How is he getting all that torque? Um, he's very good. Like he's incredible. And he doesn't totally look like what you would imagine a top, top rider would look like. But what's really important to keep in mind here is Pagachar is 
Um, very skilled at descending, so he's using a lot less energy than riders like Landa and Vindegaard and Richie Port and even like Jai Hindley, who are not like let's be honest, those guys are not skilled bike riders. Like they they have to work so hard to stay in the front on descents and on flats. They're just really good climbers. Whereas Pogacar is so skilled. I mean, he's Slovenian cyclocross champion. So he's working so much less on the rest of the course. And then he's just blowing people. It, it allows him to have more energy when they get to the climbs. Same thing with Remco Evenepoel. I mean, he's a terrible bike handler. So you know, perhaps that's why he cracks so bad on stage six. I'm still not clear what happened there. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the podcast. But it's really important to remember this about Pogacar, where when we look at his, like his watts per kilo in that climb, it's not much different than Ruglitch when he was, you know, quote unquote, cracking at Perry Nice on Sunday, like holding that gap to Simon Yates. Like those guys are going just as fast and just as hard as Ruglitch or as Pogachar, but Pogachar appears to be riding faster because the group behind is not motivated. Um, if you like go back and watch that race, like Vindegaard is racing for second place essentially at that point. Like him and Landa are jockeying amongst themselves. Neither wants to do the work. And that's allowing Pogachar to like, pull out this artificially like large gap. Same thing with Strada Bianchi. I mean, that race, while beautiful, while really fun, was not the strongest field. Like, like let's be honest, and they weren't really chasing Pogacar once he was away. There was not really a concerted chase. I mean, you could see like people free freewheeling while Pogacar is going as hard as he can off the front. So of course he's going to be able to stick a long range move if there's not a huge motivation behind. And that's Partly due to Pogacar because he's so good, he's, he intimidates people. But also, there is a trend in the in the peloton where riders are not chasing down solo riders the way they used to. But all this combines to make Pogacar look like unbeatable, um, and he, he is very good. I mean, he's won the last two major one day races. He's done. He was won the last I don't know ten stage. It's something like he's won nine of the last ten stage races. He's done. He's never DNF'd. He's very good, um, undeniable. But he he's not going to win everything. And he picks his spots very well outside of the main races, like the Tour de France. I mean, we saw last year he went to the Basque Country and he got worked over by Yumbo and Ruglitch. He's not going back this year, um, and, he, and he's kind of purposely avoiding Ruglitch and Yumbo in his build up to the Tour. He's doing races with, um, you know, Vindegaard's a very good rider. Landa's very talented rider. Richie Port talented. Is there not Grade A talents? Um, Perinis was the much harder field. Simon Yates is is a is a Grand Tour winner. Um, as, as far as I know, Vindegaard, Landa, and Port have never won a Grand Tour before in their careers. So we just want to keep that in mind when, when like everyone's like uh, running around with like the hairs on fire this week saying, oh, Pogacar's ruined the sport. He's going to win every race for the next, between now and the next hundred years. Um, he might win Milan-San Remo this Saturday. We'll talk about that later when we talk about that race. He might win the Tour de France this year. He'll probably win the Tour de France this year because he's the best rider in the world. But it doesn't mean all hope is lost. Like he's not unbeatable. A lot of things have rolled his way this this year, and and he's very good at making things roll his way, but due to his physical skill on the bike and uh, picking races with you know not weak fields, but you know not not the best 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 fields. Um, before we leave Torino, I just want to talk a little bit about Remco Evenepoel. Um, very good time trial from him, opening time trial. Um, he's probably the most hyped rider in the peloton, which is crazy to me because Tadej Pogacar is essentially the same age as him and has won the last two Tour de France's and won two monuments already, while Remco has won, I believe, three World Tour races in his entire career. I believe Pogacar has won 28 World Tour races, just to put that into perspective. But he is a great time trialist. He's very light. So you would think the conventional wisdom is he's going to be a good GC rider. 
because if you can time trial, it means you're putting out a lot of watts. If you're light, it means you'll have a high watts per kilo and you can probably climb very well. Um, and he has won a lot of one week stage races. The thing is, he's never really beat anyone who's a good grant or good GC racer. Like he's never beat a rider who's won a grand tour in their career in one of these one week races. And there's a concerning trend that he is getting, he's regressing. It might sound crazy to say, cause he looks, when he wins, he looks so good. And even when he doesn't win his performance is like, they do sparkle like at the world championships where he was off the front with like a hundred K to go. Like that looks cool. But when we dig into it, he's not doing as well as he used to, even like at the Volta Algarve where he won the overall, he was not as dominant as he was in 2020. Um, and you could argue that he's not been as good. He won with the Volta San Juan last year, won the Volta Algarve, won Volta Burgos, won the tour of Poland. That was all in 2020. He's never reached that performance again. Um, it is worth noting he did right off a bridge at Lombardy in 2020, broke his hip. And I think it's kind of underrated that he's not, it's kind of un, not talked about enough that he's not really been as good since that happened. Um, he returned at the Giro last year and he looked really good in that opening week, but they got to the mountains and he could not really climb with the leaders. Um, and he was struggling on descents. He struggled on the mixed surface, like the, the gravel stage 11, I believe that was. Um, not a super skilled bike handler. And if he does have like PTSD, which I'm sure he does from riding off that bridge, that's going to make um, it even harder for him on those difficult, those technically difficult days. You know, none of that really answers for me why he's not a better climber. Um, he, I thought that Pogacar would just like eat him alive on these uphill finishes at Torino and he would win because he's like more tactically astute and ex more explosive and he could get time bonuses. Um, that did appear to be happening on stage four. I thought Rimco really managed, like mismanaged the uphill short finish and Pogaccio worked him over and one drew, got some time between him and Rimco and got a time bonus. And I thought that that's how the race is going to play out. That's where he's going to win it. And then Evan Rimco just totally, totally fell apart on stage six in the long sustained climbs. And we haven't really, because he's only done one grand tour ever in his career, that, that Giro that he didn't finish. We don't really know how he performs on big Alpine climbs. And from what we've seen so far, he's not very good at them. Uh, I have to imagine that there's two possibilities here that um, it's mental, like he's just not confident on those long sustained climbs. It's maybe a lot, it's a different sensation and like a different output calculus basically than the more explosive efforts he's, he's used to doing. Because he does a lot of, while he races a lot, he does a lot of like lower level races that are shorter in, you know, shorter in distance and have shorter climbs. So you're like riding a more of like a threshold or above threshold effort on those climbs. Whereas long climbs, it's all sub threshold work. You know, it's very different. It feels very strange when you're not used to that. So that could be going on. It could also be, he's, he's just when he's on the flats, when he's on those time trials, when he's riding away from people like late in a race, um, he's doing it because he's so arrow. Like, you know, maybe he's not putting out that much that like the watts maybe are not that high. He's just compensating for it with like a really, you know, efficient frontal arrow profile. Um, that does not matter when you get to big climbs and you're going slower and maybe that's not quite as important and he's just not able to put out the power to hang on long sustained climbs. I, I tend to believe that less because even though he is so aero, he, he's got to be putting out like pretty impressive numbers. So while he might not be like strong enough to drop Pogacar and climbs, you'd think he'd be able to like hold it closer than he could. So uh, it, it's, it could be some type of like, he's just not training specifically for these type of climbs um, and these type of races and the efforts they require, or just mentally 
it's so foreign to the, to him. He's like panicking slightly, but whatever it is, like we still don't really know what type of writer he is. Like we're a few years into his career. He's 22. Like he's going to leave that young writer designation behind. Like, I think he's been able to float a little bit on like, he's young. We, you know, cut him some slack, but you know, 22 is he's older than Pogacar was when he won his first Tour de France. So if he wants to be a star, he's going to have to, you know, start delivering results. Like Wout Van Aert just wins. Like that guy is really impressive. Um, and I feel like he's not considered as good in the Belgian media, which is crazy to me. Um, but that's going to flip-flop. If Remco can't start delivering results, um, some tough questions are going to get asked. And I still feel like we, we don't really have a handle on what type of rider he is. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how he performs in, at the Volta Espana, which is, I believe, his only Grand Tour that he's doing this year. Um, I'm not like saying Remco's a bust, but I've, I've just been a little confused about, you know, it's like, when, when is he going to start competing against the best? Competing and like looking like he's close to winning against the best. Um, and if he doesn't, are we going to talk about it or are we just going to pretend like he's the, the greatest writer currently in the Peloton? Last thing on Torino is Tadej Pogacar, Andrew Vontz, who I, I was just on his podcast, Choose the Hard Way. Let's find that episode. I'll put, actually put it I'll put a link in the show notes. It pretty, it's a pretty good episode and it's a really good show. Um, Andrew has a lot of interesting guests. But Andrew was talking to me this weekend about Pogacar was switching between a disc brake bike and a rim brake bike at Torino, which is a, it's, it's, it's interesting, and B, it's insane, because it means that his team had to bring multiple bikes for him, uh, multiple wheel sets just for him to switch these bikes out, and it also means that he thinks, like, he perceives the weight disadvantage to be so great on a disc brake bike that he's willing to, to go through that effort to ride a rim brake bike on mountain stages, which is, like, goes against all the performance gains that we've been told that rim brakes give you, um, particularly on, on descents, so, and, and I mean, when he's on that rim brake bike, it must be the slowest bike in the Peloton. Like it, there's, there's cables everywhere. Those brake cables. I was, I've been studying up on Dan Bingham, who's like an aerodynamist. He's a very brilliant guy on his theories and methodologies about how to get, how to get the most out of your performance, basically via, via aerodynamics. And his big thing is like brake cables and shifting cables are like your enemy. Like those are going to kill, kill your performance, kill your aero gains. So the fact that Pagachar is riding with like visible cables while no one else is, um, on rim brakes, which, uh, maybe I might be a wash with, with how arrow the, the actual braking surface is compared to a disc brake. Cause you have a big, big rotor there. That's going to slow you down. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting and it's, it, it's kind of spits in the face of the bike industry. Cause there's all this marketing and there's all this research and development of these faster bikes. And then you have the, the best rider in the world on I'm, which I'm pretty certain is the slowest bike in the Peloton. So that was really interesting. And like, it will be interesting to see what he chooses um, at Milano San Remo and then at the tour. All right. And a few things from Perry Nice. I don't want to dwell too much on these races because they're old now, but um, I do want to mention the um, rotating domestique strategy that we saw from Yumbo, where they had Wout Van Art kind of dropping himself on a few mountain stages. Like I thought for sure that Wout could win the whole thing. Um, and, and he would have been my pick and he was looking well until he's looking good for that prospect until he just like dropped, uh, when they got to the mountains, uh, we saw why this was a smart strategy on stage eight, because this meant that he was able to conserve energy and he could basically sit on the front for the last 50 K of the hardest stage of the race and save the race for his teammates. So, um, that strategy was vindicated. I thought there was a few weird things about Yumbo's strategy that I, I thought it was weird that they 
made the final stage so hard that it did endanger Ruglitz, like that felt unnecessary. Like they could have just sat back with their whole team and said, hey, Ineos, if you want to win this race, make this race hard. So um, we're going to have everyone here around Ruglitz and we'll wait for you to, to make it tough on us. I don't know why they made it tough on themselves by ripping the race to shreds, like with 50K to go. That was odd to me. But they were okay because they had, wow. I mean, that was such an impressive performance. Um, I had someone, you know, a very good, a very smart reader of the newsletter email me and say that I'm like overestimating how impressive it was because he had all that rest throughout the race. But he essentially was on the front for 30Ks before the final climb of the Coldez. And then as Adam Yates attacked initially, got that 20 second gap, Wout went to the front and just pretty much held that gap steady um, against a guy 30 kilograms lighter than him on a steep, steep climb. That's like an 11% climb. So that is really, really impressive. And then once they got up and over the top, they're about 24 seconds down on, on Yates and it was game over right there. I mean, Yates would have needed like a minute and a half to, to pull out the 47 seconds to win the race overall because Wout and Roglitch were so much faster on the descent. And then on like the, they're like false flats or like false descents where it's like slightly downhill where two riders is so much faster than one in that situation. Yates did get some moto draft like in the last 5k and he was able to like hold his eight second gap steady. But um, it was just so impressive from Wow, And that was only possible because of the strategy they used of, of having him drop on select stages. We saw Sky kind of introduce this quote-unquote technology back in the mid-aughts, or sorry, the mid-tens, the mid-2010s when Froome was winning a bunch. But I don't know if we've ever seen it done with a rider as good as Wow. Um, they're like taking this to a new level. And if they can convince him to do this at the tour, it could be tough because he might be up in the high in the GC himself at the tour. Um, but he's proven, you know, he proved at Perinese he has no problem just sacrificing his GC chances as long as he, he's able to target his stage wins. And this could make it really tough for Pogacar. As I said earlier, I would not pencil Pogacar in as just like, oh, it's it's game over. He's going to win the next 10 Tour de France's um, because it's going to be hard, especially if they have Vinegard and Roglic high up in the GC and Wout is that strong and able to like, he can just weld the race together. Um, when it shouldn't be weldable. You know, Simon Yates should have been attacking and Roglic should have had to pull that back by himself. Like that's how that should have played out. But Wout kind of broke the rules by being as strong as he was that late. I've heard a lot of talk about like Roglic cracking at the end of the, at the end of Perinice. And this is like a trend and it shows why he's vulnerable. But while he does look vulnerable at the end of some stage races, like that's a, that's a trend for sure. Um, I don't know if it's like a fueling thing. If, if he doesn't have the bike skills that other riders have because he got into cycling later and he can't feed himself and drink enough when it's you know it's so technical like that final day i don't know when i would have been drinking anything like i would have had my hands glued to the bars the whole time because it's so technical so up and down and it's just harder to get stuff out of your pockets when you're when you have gloves on and you're bundled up like i i totally understand why it would be difficult um and i wonder if he's not getting enough fuel during those times you know maybe that's what happened but even if we assume he quote unquote cracked um, I want to crack like that because he put about 420 watts out for the final 19 minutes or for the 19 minutes on that final climb, um, which is similar to Pogacar's effort when he rode away from everyone at Torino Adriatico. So the, you do want to contextualize this like this collapse that he that he had. And I had a friend reach out yesterday and say that you know this was maybe the most mature that he's ever seen Ruglitz ride. That like maybe this should be framed as a positive where he didn't try to follow Yates and that was read as weakness by a lot of people, but Maybe that's just maturity because he knows, well, okay, I could shoot off after Yates, but then I'm leaving my teammate behind. And once I get up and over the climb, as long as I have Wout, I'm going to win this race. So 
I'll just ride a steady pace. Wout was dropped a little bit when Yates attacked. I'll just ride steady. Wout will catch me, and then I'll sit on Wout's wheel. And that's exactly what he did. And you know, maybe that you know, maybe he wasn't in as much trouble as we thought he was, and he was just riding a steady, measured race. You know, and looking at his power numbers, I think that's totally possible. Like, I don't really see how you could be bonking and putting. He put like a minute into Danny Martinez in the group chasing behind with like Adam Yates, Danny Martinez. Um, he dropped Naira Quintana, put significant time into him. So, you know, maybe this was more of like a measured effort than was, um, than like the initial conversation was, was making it out to be. And then, you know, finally Yates looked fantastic. This was the best I've ever seen Simon Yates look. Um, I think he will win the Giro d'Italia if he is this fit in May, but Simon Yates is peaking for May. Primoz Roglic is peaking for July. So, and, and this was kind of the first major race of the year. So if he could weather Simon Yates at his career best when he's trying, when he's much closer to his peak, that's pretty impressive. Um, I did see Roglic. I thought for sure, I, I, I swear I remember the team saying that he was going to race um, Perry Nice and then go to training camps before the Ardennes Classic. But lo and behold, I turned on the Grand Prix de Benon this morning, which is like a Perry Roubaix light, and Primoz Roglic is off the front of that race. Um, and he's doing Milan San Remo, Milano San Remo on Saturday. So I think maybe they've, I don't know, they've, they've definitely altered his schedule, but he looked fantastic on those cobblestones. So that, that is something to keep in mind because there is a Perry Roubaix cobblestone stage of the tour this year. Um, I assume that's why Roglic was doing the, the cobblestone race, the Perry Roubaix light. Um, he looked very good on the cobblestones. So um, that, that could be where he has an advantage over like even Pogacar. You know, I've never really seen Pogacar race cobblestones. I assume since he's good at everything, he's probably good at that. But um, the, the others are going to struggle for sure. Like you know, Jonas Vingegaard was at the race. He did not look good on the cobblestones. So something to keep in mind there. All right, let's talk Milano San Remo, the first monument of the year. Very exciting. Um, Italian races are always like very romantic, very beautiful. We love them. I have a special place in my heart for Italy. I wanted to get that out there before I tell you this. This is the most boring monument of the year. Oh my, it is boring. Um, it is 300 kilometers long, the longest race of the year. There's a pass in the middle of the, of the race that I've never seen on TV before because they, they, they maybe have changed this in recent years, but they don't even televise like the first half of the race because that would be cruel and unusual punishment. They roll out of Milan. I think they roll out right in front of the Duomo. Um, and the, you know, it's the, it's the Po Valley. There's nothing in there. It, it's like industrial factories and like farmland for like 150 kilometers. You will go up and over the, the Paso di Torcino, and then you drop down into, you know, it's like you go up and over like the crust of the pie, and then you drop down into the edge of the pie, and you go along along the coast. It gets kind of the speeds, the speed builds up and up and up. There's a series of five real climbs along the coast. It's faster and faster and faster every time. The tension builds, the tension builds. You get the suppressor, which is the second to last climb. They fly up that thing. Someone will try and attack. They descend down. These descents are really, really, really sketchy right along the coast. I don't know how anyone does this at the front of the race. There's like seven flat kilometers in between the Suppressa and the Poggio, which is the final climb. You go up and over the Poggio, and then you descend down to the finish. Um, it is so fast in that seven kilometers between the Suppressa, the Chapressa, and the Poggio. Um, everyone always thinks there's going to be like an attack or some rider's going to stay away between those two. It's unlikely. It's not. It's never happened in the modern history. I, I went back and looked. 
I believe 1996 was the last time someone attacked before the Poggio and stayed away for the win. And then 91, of course, Claudia Chiapucci attacked in the Paso di Torcino and stayed away for the win. You know, I guess that's possible. That's incredibly unlikely. And they raced so much differently in the 90s than they do now. I mean, you almost can't even compare the eras because we've even seen like a difference in racing between COVID and now. Um, Like it's just more intense across the entire course. Like I would guess even 15 years ago, Milano Sanremo, like anyone, like most people listening to this podcast could probably have like stayed in the Peloton for the first 100 kilometers. But these riders are so fit and the depth of fitness is so, the fitness is so deep across the Peloton that it's hard to imagine the group being small enough after the Trapeza for someone to stay away. All of this means that you could, this can work to your advantage as a viewer. You have this long, beautiful race. Like with the Cobble Classics, you got to wake up so early. Like you have to watch, start watching hundred kilometers out because anything can happen. The race usually is like takes form like 150K out. Milano San Remo is not like that. You can just turn it on with like 30K to go. Boom, you're good. If you're a real fanatic, turn it on with 50K to go. Watch the early climbs. Watch the build up to the penultimate climb. Watch them race in between the Poggio. Really, the race, it's all about positioning before the Poggio. Like that's what the name of the game here is. Because the speeds are so high, you can't make up for poor positioning. We saw Vanderpool last year was like the absolute favorite. He was not positioned well going into the Poggio. And he could not win. He was, he like Caleb Ewan is a terrible climber. He was positioned perfectly going into the Poggio and he was able to get up and over the front group with the leaders. That's really what it's all about because you're going terminal velocity on that climb. It's not super steep. It's just like, but you're going like probably 22 miles an hour. So drafting really matters and you can't move up because it's so fast and it's hard to attack because it's so fast. Even if you attack, you're probably going to get pulled back. There is a small window, maybe towards the very, very top where. Um, we saw, I think we've seen like Julian Alaphilippe and Vincenzo Nibali attack in recent years and stay away for the win. But even then, after like Nibali is the only one I can think of that had a clean, clean attack up and over the Poggio. A lot of times you get pulled back and then you got to have to make a few more moves once you get to the Via Roma, the flat run to the finish. And it gets, it can get very complicated there. Um, it can get, you know, a lot of times it's better to be like in a group that's been dropped slightly and you catch back on if you're a sprinter at least and they forget you're there and then you can out sprint them. You know, it's, so it's a sprinter's classic in the sense that it's very rarely won by a solo rider. Um, you might have to out sprint somebody, you know, but solo, solo winners have happened. Like Jasper Stuyven won last year. I guess technically he was on the same time as Caleb Ewan, the second place rider, but that was really a solo win. He attacked from like four or five K out. But then in 2020, we saw Wout Van Aert win over Julian Alaphilippe, and that's because the two of them are away and he had to outsprint Alaphilippe. So this means it's it's like a very easy race to ride, but almost impossible to win. Um, the favorite almost never wins because it doesn't really, the course doesn't really lend itself to like the strongest rider. It's not like Flanders where the, almost always the strongest rider wins. Um, it's such a tactically tough race. And a lot of times it's like momentum has a big, big, like the way you manage the momentum of the group in the final kilometer will dictate a few in and really just a lot of luck. It's a lot of luck. It's position on the Poggio, momentum in the final kilometers and luck. And it helps a lot to be able to outkick at least somebody. Um, the conventional wisdom is Tadej Pogacar is going to like win, right? Because he's winning everything. He's going he's gonna to ruin cycling because he's winning everything. Um, I, I just have a hard time believing that happened. I've, I've, people are saying that he's going to attack on the Torchino and stay away for the win. Like That's not going to happen. 
Um, the, the pace is going to be so high, he won't be able to do that. He won't even be able to attack on the Chapressa, I guarantee you. If he wants to win, he's going to have to attack on the Poggio and try to pull uh, either a Nibali or an Alaphilippe from, from 2019. Um, and if you remember Mikhail Kievkowski in 2017, he went to the line. It was like Peter Sagan, that was a, an amazing addition. Peter Sagan, Alaphilippe, and Kiyakoski were like in a three-man bike throw. They were all touching shoulders. Like It would have to be something like that, where he pulls a small group out and stays away with them and then outsprints two or three other riders. Um, here's the difficult thing, though. What's he going to do about Wout Van Aert? Like, he's not going to drop Wout Van Aert on any of these. Even if he gets a gap on the Poggio, Van Aert is such a good descender. He's, he's just going to carve him up on that descent. Um, you know, really, the only chance he would have is he gets away. The group somehow squabbles behind and, and he pulls like, a, it's like a Fabian Cancellara kind of won that way. He, he snuck away on the descent. People were not organized behind and he, and he won. It's hard to imagine anyone letting Pogacar roll off the front. You know, that's kind of what happened to Jasper Stuyven last year. Like The dark horse really has the advantage at Milano San Remo, which is why the favorite doesn't win as often. We've seen Peter Sagan come into this race super fit and just get marked out of it. Um, that's been Van Aert's problem. Like Van Aert and Vanderpool have this problem because they kind of mark themselves out of races. Without Vanderpool, it's actually going to be a much more open race. I think it helps Van Aert. And if we look at the betting odds, Van Aert is plus 200. Um, that, that's really, really expensive odds for a race that's as random as Mono San Remo. I, I wouldn't even recommend betting on this race. Caleb Ewan's plus 500. You know, he's, he's shown really well here. Um, I don't love him. On paper, I, I don't love him because he can't climb very well. So you figure, well, there's two climbs in the last 30K. How's that going to work? But he positions. He's so good at positioning himself on these climbs. And it's almost paid off. He's, he's gotten second twice. You know, those could be wins, you know, in theory. But the problem is both of those times he's been beaten by um, like a strong dark horse who's got off the front, you know, Vincenzo Nibali, and then Jasper Stoyven last year. So it just gets really hard once you're trying to, and then Tade Pogacar's at plus 500. Like that's really expensive for, for a Grand Tour winner. Um, that's cool he's doing the race. I think we're like at a, in a golden age, a modern golden age that we have Grand Tour winners competing with sprinters for monuments like that's very special that's not how it was when i was coming up in the sport um tom pickock's at plus 1400 normally i would love tom pickock but he got sick and he hasn't raced for a long time so do we even know what type of form he is in i think he's gonna have a hard time competing against the riders who have are coming off these hard hard hard, hard races and are super hot coming into this you know yep jesper Philipson. It's really tempting to bet on these sprinters. You could imagine Jasper Phillips and winning. But if we look back, you know, they call it the Sprinters Classic. The last real sprinter to win this is Arnaud Demar in 2016. A quote unquote sprinter, I mean, you could you could count out Van Aert as a sprinter, maybe, has not won the race in, you know, half a decade, in five years. So um it's not as it's not as common for the sprinters to win as people think they are today. It is, and I think a lot of people remember that it was 2013, 14, 15, 16 were all won by sprinters. Um, and so we just have this image of our mind. And then before that, Simon Garens won when he outsprinted Fabian Cancellara after sitting on his wheel. And before that, we had another run. It was like almost a decade run of just like sprinters winning. We still have that in our mind, but the race has changed, changed so much. The speeds have gotten so high on the final two climbs. Uh, I'll send out like a preview via newsletter and I'll maybe include a chart with like the increasing speeds of the climbs that it is like pricing out the sprinters, so to speak. Like there's only so fast a sprinter can climb. And if you're going up those last two climbs at Terminal 
terminal velocity, you're going to burn off the fast guys like Philipson. And, and in theory, you, and even though he's been able to stick on the last few years, um, you have like Soren Krau Anderson. That is the type of rider who wins this race. He, he looked actually really strong at Perry Nice. He is just, he's very strong, but he's just obscure enough for the Peloton to like not totally chase him down right away when he gets away, when he gets a gap on the descent. I, I could imagine him winning. He's at plus 1,800. Fabio Jakobsen's at plus 1,800. That's another rider who looks good, but you just wonder, can he stay there? You know, if you have Pogacar going all out on the Poggio, can Jakobsen really stick with that? Like, you, you can't really, that doesn't really make sense. Philippe Bogana's at plus 2,000. Another rider I really love here because he's so strong. Um, he will not struggle on the climbs, and he's very big. He's probably bigger than everyone else in this race. So once he gets a descent, it's advantage him. He can sit at 500 watts for the last like four minutes of the race and just solo off the front. That you could imagine that happening quite quite well. Um, and this is not a race where you're never going to come to like a definitive outcome via your preview. It's just like riders who have a good chance of winning, which is Wout, Wout Van Aert. Tade Pagachar, Soren Krau, Anderson, Philippe Bagana, and Kale Buen, I would say, are the lead ones. Jasper Stuyven, last year's winner, he's at plus 2,500. Hasn't looked great this year. Frankly, I, his teammate Mads Pedersen, I, I would have preferred for the win, but he's not racing this. I would have thought that he could have won this race. He's looked fantastic so far. Um, this is a great course for him. I'm really shocked he's not here. As I was editing the podcast, I saw news that Jesper Stoyven is actually sick and he won't be competing. And instead, Mads Pedersen will be in his place, who I actually really like for the win. Primoz Roglic at pl plus 2,500 and then Christophe Laporte at plus 2,500. Both Yumbo riders, both could be kind of um, decoys for Van Aert if they go off the front. Someone's got to chase them. It takes the pressure off Van Aert. He can just sit on their wheels. Um, they're both very strong right now, as we saw at Paranese Stage 1. So you know, that could happen. Laporte would actually be like the perfect. Laporte is the type of rider who wins this race. You know, you for... They're very strong. They're very good. You forget about them, and then they slip off the front, or someone pulls them to the line and they outsprint them. That is often how, how this race has won. Um, and then I would have picked Julian Alaphilippe, Matty Motorich, and Sonny Cabrelli. Like, I would have loved them here. Um, but a Apparently, Alaphilippe and Cabrelli are sick, and Motorich has a knee problem, so don't bet on any of them. Um, anyone else? I mean, this is a race where like, someone like Alexander Burrow could win. Brian Kakard could win. You know, This is not the most selective race ever, so um, honestly, I would stay away from betting on this. If you're going to bet, I love Van Aert. Plus 200 is pretty expensive. Soren Krauer is in at plus 1800. I really like. And then Philippe Ogana at plus 2,000. Christophe Laporte, Christophe Laporte at 2,500. Roglic, that seems a little far-fetched that he would win this. I love the story, but I don't know if I totally buy that. You start to think, how, how does that actually happen? There would have to be a huge mistake in the group behind where they let him go and no one chases him down. I also am hearing rumors that Matthew Vanderpool is going to race. I don't believe that. I don't think that can be true. I, I don't even really know if he's training at full speed yet, so... We'll have to wait to see, but this has been the hardest race to predict who will even be at the start line. Uh, he sent out a piece yesterday about how Mark Cavendish could win because Julian Alaphilippe was dropping out, and I thought they'd pick Mark Cavendish, but then the team didn't even ask Cavendish, and they just picked Fabio Jacobson instead. So not only do we not know who's going to win, we don't even really know who's going to be on the start line. If we look back to where the winning move has gone 
and I think it went with like 4K to go last year, 6K to go, 2020, 7K to go, 2019, 2018, 7K to go, 2017, 6K to go. Um, it seems to be a trend. Like it seems like a lot of the, like the Pelotons kind of hacked the course a little bit. Um, and that's right after you get off the Poggio. It's this, you're on this really, really sinewy descent, like a serp- serpentine descent along the coast. And then you hit, you kind of like merge onto a main road. And that's where you attack. Like if I was someone's director, I'd say that's where the race is won. You're in the last wheel on the descent. There's a slight slowing when you come off the descent. You hit them right there. That's exact, exactly what Stoyven did last year. Um, if I was Soren Crowder-Anderson, Philippe Ogana, that's where I would be attacking this year. It's very hard to pull people back because it's slightly downhill. If you're strong, you can, you can stay away and you'll get a gap because guys are trying to feel out who's going to chase there. You know, there's this pause in the group behind that is like, that's your chance to win. Um, it gets hard. Like if Van Art goes right there, people are going to be right on his wheel. If Pagacar goes, people are going to be right on his wheel. That's where like the secondary and tertiary favorites really have the advantage here. And most importantly, remember the race is Saturday, not Sunday, because it's an Italian race. I believe GCM Plus should have it. That is a fantastic service. I highly recommend it for anyone who wants to watch a lot of cycling. All right. Well, that's it for this week. I'll be back early next week and we'll talk about how this race was won and who won it. I'm excited to see. So have a good weekend and I'll talk to you soon.